As we gather together to worship this morning, I want to take a few moments to remind us why we are here. We are here to deepen a relationship that none of us started. We are here to sing songs that God has put in our hearts. We are here to confess our sin and our neediness and to receive a gift we could not earn, grace. We are here to come to a meal that none of us prepared. Beloved, we are here to be defined not by our words, but by God's word. Hear God's word. Call us to worship. This is from Psalm 85. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Beloved, all of this is true because of Christ. If you have a copy of the scriptures with you this morning, uh, would you turn with me to John chapter 5? Uh, we are continuing on in our series in uh, John's gospel, thinking about life um, with Jesus together this year. Uh, and we come to chapter 5 this morning. We're going to take a look at the first 18 verses uh, of this chapter. But as you're turning there, uh, and it should also be in your bulletins on the screen behind me, uh, let me just get us sort of caught up to where we're at when we come into John 5. The last couple of weeks, we spent some time talking about Jesus' interaction um, with the woman at the well in Samaria. So Jesus has been in Samaria. He travels from Samaria. He comes back to Cana, which if you'll remember is where Jesus performed his first miracle, of turning water into wine at the wedding at Cana. While he's in Cana, uh, Jesus heals an official's son, um, and he never even sees the young man. Never sees him, never touches him, never talks to him. He just heals him, which is pretty amazing to think about. And then that brings us to uh, John chapter 5. The first 18 verses uh, is going to be our text uh, together this morning. And so uh, read along with me uh, as we hear and take in God's word for us. It is God's grace. It's his love towards us. It's his truth. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn 
as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Would you pray with me? Let's ask the Lord to help us understand his word together this morning. Gracious Father, we come to you this morning, a people in need to be defined by your words. There's so much temptation in our own lives to try and define ourselves by our own words. We need your word this morning to come in, to change our hearts, to make us cry out, O Lord, establish the work of our hands. And we pray that this morning, that you would establish the work of our hands together here this morning. As we look at your word and engage your word, as we see how your word shows us our sin and our need for this Jesus who asks us, do you want to be healed? Holy Spirit, do this work. We have confidence that you will because you promise us you will. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In 2013, a little boy named Grayson Clamp was the first child to receive an auditory brainstem implant. Uh, He was born deaf and had not heard anything for the first three years of his life. And as they began to investigate ways that Grayson might be able to hear, they soon discovered that traditional cochlear implants weren't going to work for Grayson because the auditory nerves that are in the back uh, bottom part of our brain didn't exist for Grayson. And so the University of North Carolina Medical School uh, set out to create a passageway between where Grayson's auditory nerves would be in the bottom of his brain up to his brainstem, effectively creating um, a, a pathway for sound to go into his brainstem and then down into his ears so that Grayson uh, could hear. And if you go to YouTube and you type in Grayson Clamp's name, a, a video will show up, and I would encourage you to do this because it's, it, it's, it's awesome. It's awesome. Because the University of North Carolina Medical School captured the very first time Grayson heard anything. And the very first voice that he heard was his dad's voice. And the very first words that Grayson heard was, Daddy loves you. Those are his very first words that he heard. Daddy loves you. And you see Grayson's eyes. I mean, they just light up. And he begins to point at his dad and then point back to his ears as if to say, I, I, I hear you. I hear you for the first time. I hear you saying that you love me, Daddy. It's amazing. What science can do is Unbelievable. Well, what I want you to know is that what we have here in our text today is not something that science produced. It is absolutely 
supernatural. Jesus makes a man who could not walk for 38 years walk again. So let's dive in. Let's go right to the poolside. Here's what John describes for us in chapter 5 about the poolside. He tells us that this pool that is in Jerusalem is at the Sheep Gate. If you guys will remember about a year ago, we went through Ezra and Nehemiah together. Um, And one of the parts of the wall that they built back up was the wall that was around the Sheep Gate. The Sheep Gate was the place where uh, animals who were going to be sacrificed uh, for the atonement of sin uh, would have been brought through into the city of Jerusalem. So this pool is located there near the Sheep Gate. John tells us that the name of this pool is Bethesda, which means house of mercy. This was a place where people would have come and they would have thought about receiving mercy. And then John tells us that there are five colonnades at this pool as well too. Which means one of two things. Either this was a five-sided pool, which is probably unlikely. Or it's a a four-sided pool that had a partition down the middle, dividing it up. Which is probably more likely. And at those colonnades would have been places where people could lay, where they could get down into uh, the water that was there. The pool itself was actually uncovered in the late 1800s in an archaeological dig. And so we know like exactly how big this pool is. All right, And this, this is to give you an idea. This pool was a football field long and then another half of a football field. And the width of a football field and another half of a width of a football field, okay? To put it in even, like maybe this, this will make even more of a connection for you. Right down the road, uh, we have Aquaventure, which is the home of an Olympic-sized swimming pool. This pool at Bethesda was three times the size of an Olympic-sized swimming pool, Okay? So we're not talking about your kiddie pool out in the backyard here, okay? This is, this is a big, big pool. And John tells us that there are a multitude of invalids who have gathered around this pool. And when John uses the language of multitude, oftentimes it's used to describe numbers in excess of a thousand. So we're thinking like potentially thousands of people who are laying around the steps of the pool with a host of physical infirmities and issues, paralyzed, blind, lame, all gathered for one purpose, to take advantage of the healing waters that are at that pool. Now, this may sound a little bit foreign to us, but we actually have similar ideas currently in our day and age in in, in culture. Uh, when I was in college, I uh, got to spend a summer in India. And one of the cities that I went and visited uh, was a city called Varanasi. Uh, and Varanasi, uh, for uh, people who belong to the Hindu religion, is kind of like their, their holy city, okay? And, um, and people will bring their loved ones who have, who have died to Varanasi to be cremated. So that their ashes will blow into a river that runs right along the banks of the city. And the river is called the Ganges. You've probably heard of this. Um, 
Well, what's really, really interesting is if you go and you take a boat ride on the Ganges uh, at sunrise, which if you ever find yourself in Varanasi, I would highly recommend it. Um, It's beautiful. But what you start seeing is multitudes of people coming down, filtering down to the water. You'll see people bring people who are blind, who are lame, who are paralyzed, and they all want to get in this water because they think that the water will heal them. We could, we could leave here today, get on a plane, fly to Varanasi, and you could see this. Like this, you would actually see this happen. Well, and if you have a hard time connecting with that, uh, we have our own versions of healing pools as well, too. Um, ours tend to be connected to things like web addresses. So, like, we use WebMD. If we, if we got something wrong with us, you know, I could figure out how to heal myself if I just go to WebMD and type in my issues, all of my different symptoms, and then I can figure out how to heal myself. Well, that's the setting by the poolside. And then the story goes from this big picture description of the place where Jesus is and zooms in on a personal encounter between a lame man and Jesus. And this is where we transition to the healing. John tells us in verse 5, the first thing that John mentions is that this man has been paralyzed for 38 years. 38 years. Just to give you an idea, that is longer than probably the majority of the people in this room have been alive. I don't know what 38 years looks like personally. This man has been unable to walk longer than I have been alive. It's a long time. And in comes Jesus, and he asks this man what at first glance seems like an absurd question. Do you want to be healed? What do you think? Right? Like, what do you think? You, you think, oh, no, I'm good. I'm all right. Like, I just like to hang out here, Jesus. Of course this man wants to be healed. But here's something that we also know about Jesus Jesus is never absurd. Jesus never mocks. Jesus never makes fun of. There has to be something deeper to this question and this encounter. And the deeper is that Jesus is reaching out to this man and connecting with him. You see, people like this man and all of the other thousands of invalids who would have been lying there at the pool at Bethesda would have been outcasts. They would have been marginalized. People like Jesus would never have actually spoken to and interacted with these people. And here we have Jesus. He comes back into Jerusalem for a religious feast. And the very first thing that he does is he goes to the place where the poorest and the most marginalized outcast people are in the entire city. Can't you imagine? Like, and he's looking upon all of these people. And he sees this one man who's, who's laying there and he's got a bed with him. And he looks on him and he says, Do you want to be healed? He connects with him personally. In that question, he is letting that man know, I care about you. 
I have compassion. I know your plight. And here's what's true. Like Jesus knows that he has the power to heal this man. Jesus even knows that he's going to heal this man. But you know what? Jesus never skips personal connection. Never. He never jumps right to the thing that he's going to do. He always connects with our hearts. And he's doing that with this lame man right here. And he does it with you and he does it with me. He never skips over our hearts, beloved. He always relates to us personally. He never just goes right to the healing that he's going to do. He always brings our hearts with him. Jesus slows down and connects with this man's deepest felt need. The inability to walk. And Jesus always slows down to connect with my deepest felt needs and your deepest felt needs too. He never skips over our hearts. He's not going to skip over this man's heart. And the man responds by explaining to Jesus all of the obstacles that are out there to his healing. Look back with me at verse 7. This is how the man responds to Jesus. The sick man answered Jesus, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. He looks at Jesus and he says, I don't have anyone to help me. And every time that I try to kind of like make my way down to the water, somebody pushes me aside. Somebody gets in front of me. And there seems to be a connection in this man's mind between the water stirring and it healing him. If you look a little bit more closely uh, at your text, you will notice that there's no verse 4 there. It goes straight from verse 3 right to verse 5. Um, verse 4 gives a little bit more of an explanation of, of this stirring here in verse 7. But here's what I want us to know. Okay, Here's, here's what, what I want to lay down for us. One, you do realize that the verse numbers in your Bibles are not wholly inspired. Okay? Alright, so what you have in front of you is God's Word. Okay? It's not lacking anything. The reason that this verse 4 is not included in here is because it's not found in the original manuscripts that we have. And if this bothers you and you want to talk about it more, I'm happy to do that afterward. But I don't want us to miss the focus of the passage. And that is that there seems to be something with the stirring of the water and the healing properties, at least in this man's mind. That if he could just somehow get down into the water while it's stirring, then it would heal him and he would be able to walk again. At any rate, this man comes to us as someone who is desperate, who is helpless and hopeless that he will ever walk. Jesus sees this man's desperation and he says to him, verse 8, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. The man is healed. He grabs his bed. And he walks away. Now, that's the pool side and that's the healing. Now we got to slow down a little bit, put our thinking caps on, and jump into the deep end. 
and start diving into the deep waters of what's really going on here. Because when Jesus heals this guy, we have to think about how that connects with us. Okay? So, here's what I want to do. Let's start with the facts. Okay? Here's the facts. People have a problem with Jesus healing this man. That's what verses 10 through 18 are all about. That the Jews that are there, they have a problem with Jesus healing this man. They have a problem with the guy himself for carrying his bed on the Sabbath. And they have a problem with Jesus for healing him. And, and it even says that their problem boils down to that their problem with Jesus is that he's making himself equal with God. And the way that that is happening is that he is working on the Sabbath. That's how they're putting that together. By Jesus working on the Sabbath, he's saying that he's equal with God. By this man carrying his bed on the Sabbath, he is breaking the Sabbath. And that means that we got to take a closer look at how the Jews thought about the Sabbath and the background behind it. You see, this idea of Sabbath is one of the oldest ideas that we have in Scripture. We have to go all the way back to Genesis 1 to begin our understanding of Sabbath. We have to go all the way back to the creation of all things when God the Father, Son, and Spirit spoke everything into existence. Over the course of six days, God worked to make everything that we see. And then on the seventh day, God Sabbathed. He rested from His work. God made everything and said that it was good... And then he rested. Can you imagine a world in which everything is good? We can't really fathom it. Because we live in such a broken world. But at the creation of all things, God made everything. He called it good. And he rested from his work. Our lives are supposed to be patterned after God. So we work and we rest. Sabbath also connects with worshiping God. God tells his people in Exodus 20 to keep the Sabbath holy, to keep it set aside for worshiping him as his gathered people. So when we gather for worship each week, we are proclaiming together as God's people that our rest is found in God alone. We're doing that right now. We are proclaiming that our rest is found in God alone. We are saying that God is the center of everything, not us. Jesus tells us that God created the Sabbath for us as a good gift to us to be received. Jesus tells us that the Sabbath is God's grace to us. A reminder that our work does not save us. Christ alone saves us. And these people here, these Jews that we run into here, they are making a connection between Sabbath and Jeremiah 17. If we were to go back and look at Jeremiah 17, we see that the Sabbath also connects with God's law. Which is why they're saying that what Jesus is doing and what this man is doing is unlawful. 
In Jeremiah 17, God instructs his people not to carry any burden on the Sabbath. And that's kind of what the Jews here are are, are running to. That this man is carrying a burden on the Sabbath. And what's really happened is that the Jews took this good gift of Sabbath and added to it. And put their own ideas and laws on top of it. They created laws beyond God's word thinking that they could somehow avoid sin. Here's just a few examples of what some of those things that they created on top of God's word. One of the things that you couldn't do on the Sabbath was practice medicine. And one of the uh, medicinal things that people used was vinegar if you had like mouth issues. So people would kind of swish vinegar. Well, you weren't allowed to do that on the Sabbath. But they had created kind of a back door around it because you could put as much vinegar as you wanted to on your food and then eat it. That's one thing that they did to add to God's law. Here's another. It's still relating to food here. Is you weren't allowed to travel from your home unless it was to go to the temple to worship God. So what they did is they said, well, here's the deal. If you have a certain amount of food in another place, then you can technically consider that your home. And so it's no big deal for you to be able to travel between this place and that place so long as you've got enough food there. They were trying to create all kinds of loopholes. And to our point here, if this man who picked up his bed and walked had taken his bed and wrapped it around him as if it was kind of like a shirt, they'd have never said anything to him. But because he was carrying it, he was doing something that was unlawful. He was doing something that was breaking God's law in their minds. Now for a moment, let's put ourselves in this lame man's shoes. Do you really think that, you, that if you had been unable to walk for 38 years, that having the ability to walk and then the ability to carry your bed would have really been a burden? You know, Grayson Clamp, in order to be able to hear his daddy say that he loves him, he's got to turn a switch on. You think turning that switch on is a burden to him? To hear his father say that he loves him? Seems a lot more like joy to me than a burden that is too heavy to carry. The Jews had added to God's word, creating a means to not sin or to avoid sin, creating ways to be a good person. Ultimately, what they were doing is they were trying to create a man-made system in which they could save themselves. Rules dominated their lives. They loved a checklist. If I can just get my checklist out at the end of the day and look back through it and say, well, I didn't carry my bed. Um, I did go between these two places, but I had enough food over there, so I was okay. And I didn't swish with vinegar. I put it on top of my food. I can check all of those off and say, hey, I didn't sin. Pat me on the back. We're doing great. I can save myself. They had replaced God's word with man-made rules. They had elevated their word above God's word. 
they had produced a life in which their immediate response to a lame man being healed after not walking for 38 years was, hey, you're breaking the law. Stop that. And oh, by the way, the guy that healed you, he's breaking the law too, and we would really like to kill him. Which we see in verse 18. The Jews set out to kill Jesus because of this. Their reason? Jesus was making himself equal with God. Which is really incredibly ironic, given that they have elevated their rules above God's word. In effect, saying that they are more than equal to God. That they are actually greater than God. That their law was better God's word wasn't good enough on its own. It couldn't stand on its own. It needed us to add to it and make it better than what he had given. Needed some help from the outside. So I find it incredibly ironic that the reason they want to kill Jesus was because Jesus was calling himself equal with God. When they had created an entire system around their rules that they were saying was greater than God's actual word. Now, let's zoom back out for a little bit here, okay? We get the healing. We get that there is a deep problem going on here. All right, those two things are, it's clear that those things are going on. But I want us to zoom back out, and I want us to think about an idea together. Um, You ever heard the saying, house of cards? No? Yeah? Yeah? Okay, all right. Uh, You know, a house of cards communicates this idea that you build this scaffolding up around something, and if one little thing goes wrong, then the whole house of cards could crumble, right? It, It literally comes from people taking playing cards and trying to build a house out of it. And if you've ever done that, you know that the higher that that house gets, the more, like, unstable it gets. And then if one card falls, then boom, the whole thing kind of crumbles down, doesn't it? Well, the Jews had built their lives around a house of cards. A house of cards that if they could somehow create a means to not sin or to avoid sin, then they could save themselves. You know what else is true? The lame man had his own house of cards too. His house of cards was built around the pool, healing him, making him well. All of their lives revolved around fear that that house of cards would crumble around them. For the Jews, it was fear of losing power or control or authority. For the lame man, he was afraid that his hope for walking would never be realized. The best that the Jews could imagine was a life avoiding sin. The best that the lame man could imagine was walking again. And here's what it boils down to. They could not imagine a life with grace. They could only imagine a life revolving around what they wanted. Couldn't imagine a life with grace. Could only imagine a life revolving around the thing that they wanted the most. Their house of cards. And you know what's true? 
We have our own house of cards too. We're not exempt from this. We too cannot imagine a life where grace is true and real. We too only have the imagination for life how we want it. Here's just a few examples. We can build our lives just around whatever makes us happy. That I'm just pursuing the next thing that makes me, that, that, that makes me happy. How about uh, financial security? We can build our lives around money. We can build our lives around our ability to be morally superior to others. We can build our lives around just pleasing others. We can even build our lives around not pleasing others. Because we don't really care what other people think. We can build our lives around the next best thing. Because we can't imagine a world in which I'm content with what is right in front of me. Like the Jews, we can build our lives around creating extra rules that we place above God and His Word to avoid sinning, to protect ourselves, to maintain purity, to have control. Because at the end of the day, that's more important than anything else. Let's dig in a little bit more. I have a tendency to build my life around people needing me. And when I feel like they don't, I'm tempted to just try and create ways in which they will. I can also have a tendency to build my life around being a great parent. That's a high value for me. And I can be tempted to, to, to build a house of cards all around that. And truthfully, just like the Jews and the lame man, all of that building, all of our building, all of my building is out of fear. I'm so afraid that people won't accept me or like me unless I can be needed by them. That They won't really want me around unless they need something from me. I'm terrified of setting my kids up for failure. I can't tell you how many conversations that Carrie and I have about, well, what's the next step for our kids' education? And how are we going to make sure that we're not failing them in that? We are so tempted to build our lives around the things that we want and that we desire. And we have such a hard time imagining a life that is full of grace. If happiness is our house of cards, maybe we're afraid to sit in the sadness that the world is actually broken. Money? Maybe we're just always afraid that we might not have enough. So we've got to keep going. And we've got to keep getting more. Morally superior? Maybe we're afraid that someone might actually realize that we don't have it all together. And we've got to protect that image. Because we, we, we can't let people see that we might actually sin. Pleasing others? Maybe we're afraid that we won't be needed. 
I struggle with that. Not pleasing others, if that's your thing, maybe you're afraid that you might actually need somebody else. And that you can't just do it on your own. The next best thing, maybe we're just afraid of missing out on something greater than what is happening right now. And truthfully, if that's our posture towards life, we miss the greatness of the relationships and the connections that are right in front of us. We think that the greatest possible thing could be if our house of cards held up. We cannot imagine life apart from what we want individually. And Jesus, he's stripping it away. Jesus was stripping away what the Jews thought was saving them. Jesus was saying, you cannot overcome sin with rules. You can't do it. It's impossible. You can't skip your heart. The lame man thought his deepest problem was that he needed to walk. And Jesus looks at him and he says, sin no more. Sin no more that nothing worse might happen to you. And Jesus isn't saying in that, 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 you know, so that nothing worse might happen to you. Jesus isn't holding the fact that he healed him over his head. What Jesus is doing is he's getting right at his heart. He's saying, you think that your worst problem is your inability to walk. And what I'm telling you is that I have brought you forgiveness and grace and giving you the power to fight your sin. It's so much bigger than just your ability to walk. Jesus was offering him forgiveness of sin and power to run in his grace. And the same offer is true for you and me too. Jesus and Jesus alone can enliven our imaginations to grace. And he does so not by offering us a house of cards, but he gives us himself. He gives us himself. He gives us his body and his blood for our sin. In place of the rules that we try to save ourselves with, Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Jesus trades his grace-filled life for our house of cards. And Jesus is stripping away our house of cards too, beloved. He is stripping away my fear that I'm just going to set my kids up for failure. He is stripping away my fear that I might not be needed. And that would mean that somebody needs something other than me. Jesus. Which is true of all of us. He is stripping all of those things away. All of our house of cards that we try to build up around ourselves, Jesus is slowly and gently stripping those down. He is giving us power to fight our sin, to not build our lives around the things that we try to replace God with. You know what else is true? Jesus never skips personal connection with you and with me. He meets us at each point personally. And he says to us, do you want to be healed? 
Get up. Take up your life. Follow me. And oh, by the way, we're going to carry your heart with us. And in my grace, I'm going to heal you every step of the way and fill you with my grace. And beloved, it's that grace and that grace alone that brings us to the table together this morning. Where Jesus does not offer us a house of cards, he offers us himself. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he was celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And one of his own betrayed him. While he was there celebrating that meal with them, after giving thanks, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat and remember. And in the same way, the Lord Jesus took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of your sins. As often as we come and partake of this meal, as often as we come and partake of the bread and the cup, we are proclaiming the Lord Jesus' death until he comes again and he makes all things new. This table is a picture of God's grace to us. It's a picture that Jesus doesn't give us a house of cards, that he gives us himself. And in Jesus, we have forgiveness of our sins. We have justification. We are made right with God because of what Christ has done alone. Your work will not save you. You cannot build up enough rules to save yourself. That is what this table proclaims, that Christ alone saves us. And it's also a promise, too, that he's going to continue to work into us his grace. That he's going to continue to come to us at different seasons and in different moments and say to us, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Get up. Take up your life and follow me. This table is the table of the Lord Jesus. It's not my table. It's not Christ Presbyterian's table. It is not the table of the Presbyterian Church in America. This table belongs to Jesus. So if you are here this morning and you belong to Jesus, and what that means is that you have been baptized, that you have joined a Bible-believing and Bible-preaching church and put yourself under submission to that, then this table is for you. You need it and I need it. But if you're here this morning and you wouldn't say that you belong to Jesus, there's nothing magic happening at this table. The bread and the cup are not going to save you. It's not just another house of cards for you. And we would encourage you that instead of taking of the bread and the cup, let those elements pass you by and think about Jesus and think about your life and think about the gospel of grace that is on offer to you to find your rest in Christ alone. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this meal that you give us that is your grace to us. Your, your, your 
picture that, that engages all of our senses of what Christ has done. And your promise that Christ will continue to work in us. That through the power, your power, Holy Spirit, that you will grow us in grace and you will heal us every step of the way. That you will work into us to bring our sin and to repent and to believe the gospel again and again and again. So we pray that as we come to this table this morning, this meal that you have made and that you invite us to, you would continue to grow us in your grace. And we have confidence that you will because you promise us that you will. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Your God is a God who pronounces blessing over you because of what Christ has done. So hear this and take it in. Try to believe it as best as you can. Ask and pray that the Spirit would enliven your imagination to a life filled with grace. This week the Lord will bless you and He will keep you. His smile will be upon you and He will be gracious to you. He will continue to pursue you. He will continue to look at you and say, do you want to be healed? And forever and ever and ever, his presence will be with you and we will see Jesus face to face. And we will be made whole. God will give us his peace. Go in peace, beloved.